0: Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at verses 12 through 17 this morning. Uh, Chapter 1 concludes with the vision of the Son of Man as our prophet, priest, and king. And then chapter 2 transitions to letters written to seven churches. There's this interesting relationship between the letters that that you find when you just think about the broader theme of each one. You had the... The letter to the loveless church in Ephesus. And then in the the last letter, the seventh letter, is to the lukewarm church in Laodicea. So there's a a kind of a a lack of love there as well, or a lukewarmness to the things of God. Um, In the second, as well as the sixth letter, you have Smyrna and Philadelphia only receiving commendation. There is no correction of anything that they're doing. And then you have the middle three churches, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, where there's this increasing escalation of compromise within their midst. So you have the worldly church of Pergamum, the immoral church of Thyatira, and the dead church of Sardis. It escalates quite quickly, doesn't it, from worldliness to deadness. And so we'll cover that escalation and compromise over the next three weeks, uh, beginning with Pergamum. This morning, Christians are encouraged here for their faithfulness to the name of Christ, but they do struggle to maintain that faithfulness in terms of how they engaged the culture. There's the faithfulness to the name of Christ in one sense that they're holding on to, and yet they also seem to be holding on to the culture this challenge addresses an age-old problem. How can we be in the world without being of the world? So I like what, how Joel Beakey illustrates this. He says, a ship at sea is where it was designed to be, in the water. But once water gets to the, uh, starts to get into the ship, if no action is taken, it is only a matter of time before the ship sinks. Although the ship is meant to be in the water, the water is not meant to be in the ship. As Christians, we are meant to be in the world, but the world must not be in us. And that is what we see here happening in Pergamum. It seems as if the, the hole has been damaged and water is beginning to seep in. And so unless they heed this letter from their Savior, uh, they too will sink Before we read the passage, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, each time we open your word, we we come to you dependent upon your spirit to give us eyes to see the truth and ears to hear it, that we would respond in obedience to your word. And so, Lord, give us those blessings even now. Remove the distractions from our minds. Help us to focus intently. Upon your word, that it might have its full effect in our lives. For your glory, we ask it. In Christ's name, amen. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two edged sword I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality." Amen. This is God's holy word. So Christians in, in Pergamum appear to have one hand on Christ and the other hand on the world, and they're holding fast to both. They're committed to both. They don't want to let go of either. But it's not a harmonious relationship. It won't last. The gospel calls us to hold fast to Christ, forsaking all others. And so a genuine love for christ compels us to guard against worldly corruption it must that's that's the impact of a of a loving savior who's doing a transforming work in our hearts that we begin to love him more and more desire him more than the world so like the other letters this one begins with a note about the author Readers are reminded of the vision of the Son of Man. Here the focus is on the sword of judgment in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Since the Roman proconsul took up residence in Pergamum, they actually had the right to execute criminals that were found guilty within their city. that, That was the privilege of having the proconsul among them. But true justice... Was the Lord's. Right from the beginning here, Christ is reminding them that the sword of justice is in his mouth, not the hands of the wicked city rulers. So the sword of Christ protects those who hold fast to him in tribulation. But it also brings swift punishment upon those who compromise with the world and refuse to repent. So we'll see both in this letter. And so let's consider the first thing here. This former group who is commended for holding fast to Christ's name in the midst of corruption. That's following your outline there. Holding fast to Christ's name in the midst of corruption. Verse 13, we read, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Pergamum was located 65 miles north of Smyrna, which we looked at last week, and 110 miles north of, um, of Ephesus. It had a population of roughly 120,000, so it's smaller, a n- little larger than half the size of Ephesus. Um, but it was located 15 miles inland, and so being so far from the coast, they They were restricted in their ability to trade, so economically, their value was was nowhere near that of Ephesus and Smyrna. However, what they lacked in economic value, they made up for in educational, religious, and political value. They capitalized on these things. Pergamum was a place of deep learning. In fact, the the term parchment, parchment was, uh, it it, it still retains some of the similarities in the city's name, Pergamum. Um, especially when you look at other languages, but uh, parchment was invented in Pergamum. They had um, a library that contained some 200,000 volumes. They were a place of deep learning. You could go there to be educated. Uh, They were also very fond of worshiping all kinds of idols. They had temples to Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, and especially Asclepius, which I'll explain in a little bit. And like most cities in Asia Minor, they were increasingly devoted to emperor worship. And so the pergamines were, were, were proud of their station, but Jesus calls them Satan's throne in this verse. You dwell where Satan's throne is. And then in the end of the verse, where Satan dwells. Why would he use that language? Well, some have said that he's thinking specifically of a particular idol or particular temple there in Pergamum, and it's possible. So one suggestion is that um, their their primary goddess was Asclepius. She was the goddess of healing, a serpent goddess of healing. In fact, you see the symbol of a snake wrapped around a staff that is still used in the medical, medical profession today, the rod of Asclepius is what it's called. So many would travel to Pergamum in order to worship Asclepius and to be healed by her. So that could possibly be what Jesus is referring to here as Satan's throne. It could also be a reference to the temple of Zeus, as in most uh, um, places, that, that any city that worshipped Zeus, Zeus was given a prominent uh, location, he was kind of the, the pinnacle of the, the number of gods that they're worshiping. So Zeus's uh, temple was located at the highest peak of the city. In fact, if you were entering into the city, that's probably the first thing your eyes would be drawn to would be the temple of Zeus, its foundations that jut out over uh, a ledge um, in, in front of the other temples. So it could be a reference to Zeus as, the th- as Satan's throne, or it could simply be that Jesus has emperor worship in mind and the, and the rising interest in emperor worship, referring to the throne of Rome sort of as having satanic influences. Uh, Whereas Smyrna was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to the goddess of Rome, Pergamum was the first to build a temple honoring the emperor, honoring Augustus, Rome and Augustus. It was built in 19 BC. So they were the first to receive that title, Neokoros, which I've mentioned before with Ephesus as the temple warden. It was It was an honorary title given to them by Rome. That title would transfer to Smyrna in 26 AD, and then Ephesus earns the title in 89 AD. In the decades that follow this letter, the title would switch back to Pergamum one more time, and then again to Ephesus. So it's this competition, and and the engravings that you can still see today say things like the first to be Neocoros in Pergamum. The first to be given the honorary t- distinction of neochoros. And then in Ephesus, you see that uh, because they, they held it for a, a lengthy period of time. But then when it goes back to Pergamum, then they, you start to see inscriptions that say, the first to be given the title neochoros twice. And then it goes back to Ephesus. And Ephesus will ultimately maintain it for the, length, um, for the rest of the time after that. But there was just going back and forth where they were trying to outdo one another in honoring Rome. Well, it's important to uh, keep in mind because it shows that rising influence of the imperial cult and that competitive spirit which was happening even in Asia Minor and it led to this increasing level of persecution among Christians. Um, Pergamum was right at the heart of that competition. So this was especially notable in this verse by the example of Antipas my faithful witness. The word eventually for witness there in Greek is martis. It eventually becomes associated with those who witness to death, right? Who witness to Christ in the face of death, who die for their faith as a martyr. Tradition tells us that John, the apostle John here, appointed Antipas as bishop of Pergamum during Domitian's reign and that he was roasted to death in a bronze bull in 92 AD. So just a few years before this letter would have been received. And Jesus took note of the church's faithfulness despite their corrupt context. So idolatry in our Western world doesn't look the same. Right? We don't walk around and see temples to Zeus and temples to Dionysius or Asclepius, but we're no less idolatrous. And the word Uh, I mean, the the idea is we can walk through Times Square and reflect upon the idolatry of materialism. Uh, We can do some research on the most popular Google searches and reveal our immoral addictions. The incessant presence of social media in our lives points to our narcissistic need for validation, our worship of self success is measured today in likes and hearts so all of these are all of these abuses are making our culture increasingly less stable everybody seems to recognize how unhealthy this is but no one seems to know how or what to do about it the best solutions could probably be summarized as models of escape or isolation In other words, if you want to overcome the world, you have to find a way to escape it. But that's not what Jesus says here. He commends believers in Pergamum for holding fast to his name while living where Satan dwells. He doesn't encourage them to flee Pergamum. Get out of there. Flee for your safety and for your faith. No, he encourages them to hold fast to him they must not lose sight of Christ, especially as they walk through a city that highlights every alternative to him. Literally, just about every building in Pergamum was associated to some idol that they worshiped. What about us today? Parents, do you have a strategy for your kids? Maybe this, this um, announcement that I gave at the beginning that sparked this idea of this application, but do you have a strategy for your kids to hold fast to Christ when all they want is another screen to entertain them? Teens, do you have an understanding of who you are in Christ so that you are not influenced by the likes and comments of your so-called friends and followers on you face, as Conan O'Brien would call it? Love for Christ compels your faithfulness to Christ. Are you growing in your love for Christ? Does he satisfy your your deepest desires? The answer to that question is, I think, most clearly demonstrated by the strength of our grip upon the means of grace. Is your craving for the preaching and reading of God's word increasing or decreasing? Do you value participation in the sacraments? Are private, family, and corporate prayer rooted in your daily and weekly routines. Those are the evidences of a lively and growing faith. So we live in a world that is radically different than first century Pergamum, but 21st century Americans are in no less danger. Rather than being threatened by the Roman sword, we are being lulled into complacency by American corruption. And so let us consider that second group, that group which holds fast to corruption in the midst of Christ's church. That's the second point, verses 14 through 15, holding fast to corruption in the midst of Christ's church. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So Jesus makes two references to teachings that both represent worldly compromise. The teaching of Balaam is a reference to the events described in in the book of Numbers, where Moab took notice of Israel's gain in prominence and then wanted to put an end to it. And so Balak, the king of Moab, had requested the service of an eastern seer named Balaam, Balaam to come and curse Israel. But uh, The Lord ensured that Balaam would not be able to curse Israel, but only bless Israel. And yet we do learn that later on that the seer advised Balak, since he couldn't give them a curse, since he couldn't pronounce a curse upon them and he could only bless them, he gave him a strategy. He advised Balak to use Moabite women to entice the Israelites into sexual immorality and idolatry. And unfortunately, the approach was tremendously effective. Israel spirals into idolatry, provoking the Lord's anger. You can read that in Numbers 25. So, immorality and idolatry were prominent temptations in the Old Testament. They're prominent temptations under the New Testament as well. You see the same thing in 2 Peter, right? As Peter is writing to believers in this same region of Asia Minor, rebuking some who followed the way of Balaam. So, Balaam represented false teachers who have an appearance of faithfulness and yet promote compromise with the world. They say, You're free, you're free in Christ. Christ has set you free, therefore, the things you do with your body are not really that important. So first century Gentile Christians had been clearly instructed by the Jerusalem council not to eat food sacrificed to idols. Read that in Acts 15. Paul argued that Christians were free to eat whatever their conscience would allow but that they should be willing to refrain from eating anything that would cause one of his brothers to stumble. So it wasn't that the act itself of eating meat was sinful, but enjoying the meat in the context of pagan rituals was idolatry. To associate yourself with the whole ritualistic practice that was taking place to enjoy that festival among the pagans was idolatry. And Paul was condemning it, in, uh, he condemns it in chapter 10. He says, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons, 1 Corinthians 10, 21. So this indicates that some had entered into the pagan festivals themselves. They weren't just finding meat at the meat market and eating it, regardless of whether it had been sacrificed to idols. That would have actually been okay, because we know those idols aren't real. We know that sacrifice wasn't important unless it would cause a brother that they were eating with to stumble. Then they should refrain from eating that meat. But it was absolutely forbidden to enter into these pagan festivals and to enjoy the fellowship meal with them. And that's what was taking place. So clearly this thing is is still going on when John is writing to them, uh, well, Jesus is writing to them through John. The term here in verse 15, where it says, So also you have some who teach, who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That word in, in the Greek is homoios, and it's, it means likewise or similarly in the same manner or way. Um, and so it may associate the Nicolaitans' teaching with that of Balaam. That is the, the conclusion of the vast majority of scholars that I've read on this verse. So if that is true, if, this, if the Nicolaitans were similar to, the, to Balaam, not identical, but similar to Balaam, then what we'll see in Thyatira is the same thing with the teaching of Jezebel in verse 20. So if the teachings of Balaam, Jezebel, and the Nicolaitans, although not identical, they all seem to be guilty of integrating Christianity with pagan practices. That seems to be what they're advocating for, a compromise with the pagan culture in order to survive and in order to thrive in the culture because it was so wrapped up with their emperor worship, so wrapped up with their idolatry that if you wanted to get ahead in life, you had to engage in that way. So Ephesus was commended for hating the work of the Nicolaitans, whereas they needed to temper their religious zeal with love for others, the Christians in Pergamum needed to repent of their complete acceptance of false teaching. Again, Joel Beakey says, the letter to Smyrna reveals the church in the world, whereas the letter to Pergamos reveals the world in the church. Again, there can be no harmonious fellowship between disciples and heretics. Allowing false teachers to remain among them was indicative of the compromise that they had made with sin. The church in Pergamum did not hold these false teachers accountable because they didn't view their sin as serious as Christ did. Or maybe they'd simply refused to practice church discipline. Many churches today worry more about their numbers or their reputation than the purity of Christ's bride. And Jesus was calling them to repent. To repent or face imminent judgment. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you Soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. This is not a reference to the Lord's final judgment, but to a temporal judgment upon the church. It would be similar to the threat of removing the lampstand from them, destroying the church because it was so compromised. We've already pointed out how integral idolatry and emperor worship were in Pergamum, but if they entirely withdrew from idolatrous rituals, They would have certain. It would have had a negative impact upon their social status. It probably would have cost many of them their jobs. But there was no alternative, and this is what Christ was calling them to do: to be faithful to Him, to hold fast to Him, and to no longer hold fast to the world. The term there, in fact, is the same. You have the the idea of holding fast to My name. And then in verses 14 and 15, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Even though it doesn't say hold fast in the Greek, it's the exact same name, all right, exact same word, hold fast and hold. So you're, in one hand, you're holding fast to Christ, but then you're allowing people who hold fast to false teaching. So we've, we've pointed out that, it, how integrated it was to their culture. But the specific sins that were compromised by, by the, Christians in Pergamos or Pergamum was the enjoyment of pagan festivals, which included the indulgence in food, sacrifice to idols, and sexual immorality. Again, just like we could say idolatry doesn't look the same today, we could say some of the sins and temptations of the church are not necessarily the same. In this case, however, there is a, a, a lot of similarity, the idea of not considering our brothers and the offense we might cause in the way we live out our freedom in Christ. We must faithfully heed Christ's warning about false teaching. We must vehemently oppose heresy. Worldly parties often result in an overindulgence in food and alcohol. Again, I'm not suggesting that the food or the alcohol itself is the sin. It's the overindulgence. So we may not host pagan orgies, but we seem to have difficulty avoiding them on Netflix or the internet. So we can be frank about that. Our sins are very similar to the sins of Pergamum. Love for Christ not only compels us to hold fast to his teaching, but also to adopt his call to holiness. So those who have ears to hear this truth, finally, in verse 17, they receive the conqueror's reward from the hand of Christ. They receive the conqueror's reward from the hand of Christ. Hidden manna is what he says here. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Hidden manna is the, the food that the wilderness generation was preserved by. right? And that manna was from heaven, as we read in Psalm 78, verse 24. So an omer of that same manna was kept in a golden urn and placed in the Ark of the Covenant. You read that in Exodus. So Jewish teaching had begun to associate the concept of manna as bread of heaven with God's future heavenly reward. To enjoy the hidden manna implies the participation in the heavenly feast that awaits all believers who persevere in faith through this life. And this white stone may simply elaborate on the same idea of manna, which resembled delium, but delium. Which is a white stone? You can read that in Numbers eleven seven. Paul used the same word, also, uh, to speak of, of casting his vote. The same word that it, that is translated here, white stone. Paul says he cast that stone against Stephen. He talks about that in his testimony in Acts chapter twenty six ten. So this stone or pebble, which it, it represented many things, it was a, a voting mechanism. It it was. Used to determine uh, a jury, a jury would hand either a white or a black stone to determine whether they considered the, um, uh, the perpetrator guilty or innocent. So if he received a white stone, it was, it was a testimony of his innocence. It was also used as a reward for athletic games, sort of as a, a trophy. It was also used as ticket, tickets for admission into different social events. And so it's associated with, with many things, and that may be, any one of these things may have to do with uh, this particular letter. But whatever the precise meaning, it seems to indicate an assurance of eternal life. It seems to indicate an, a receiving of the promises of our inheritance, a resting in that reward. So the manna, the stone, as well as the new name, you you receive a new name from God, was to share his character and to receive a new status. Isaiah prophesied that God would call his people by a new name. The church has become the new Israel who will enjoy eternal communion in the new heaven and new earth. So all of these combined is the man of the stone and the new name. They all represent the reward of our everlasting fellowship with Christ and his people. Those who conquer will receive the reward of Christ from Christ. It's from his hand we will receive. And Michael Wilcox says this, Christ gives that man a personal invitation to the true pleasures of the banquet of heaven. Christ gives that man a personal invitation to the true pleasures of the banquet of heaven, which are in fact himself. All the promises of God find their yes in him. And he is the true man of the heavenly bread. So from the hand of Christ, we receive Christ. We receive more of him. Love for Christ compels us to guard against worldly corruption because that is what Christ came to redeem us from. And and as he gives us more of himself, we turn away more and more from that sin and turn to him. We've been set apart from the world that we might find in Christ our all in all. He died in order to set us free from the penalty of, and power of sin. So how could we ever desire again the chains of corruption after they've already been broken? Let's go to him now. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have this picture of a a church that is much like our own, that struggles with worldly temptation, struggles to hold fast to you in the, in, in the, at the same time being tempted to hold fast to this world, hold fast to the rewards, that, the, the very temporary and fleeting rewards that this world has to offer in comparison to the eternal inheritance that awaits those who hold fast to Christ. Lord, we are fully aware that it is only by your Spirit that we can maintain that grip upon Christ that we must rest in those ordinary means of grace that we've considered this morning. Fill us with an ever-increasing desire for those means. That as we transition into uh, participating in the Lord's Supper, that this itself, as, as often as we do it, that it would be a reminder once again of the grace we've received in Christ, that he has taken the punishment in our place, for our own idolatry. The wrath that we deserved was poured out upon him so that we might come emboldened by his invitation. Lord, help us to respond as we sing, recognizing what Christ has invited us to and what he has called us to in this life, to take up our cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I invite you to stand.